Mark Thomas is a professor of evolutionary uh, genetics, thanks Rob, at UCL. He's published in the fields extensively of human evolution, the molecular phylogenetics of extinct species using ancient DNA and cultural evolutionary modelling. Here to talk about culture is Mark Thomas. Mark, so I just need to recap on how evolution works. Um, <laughs> biological evolution, yeah? Okay, so, um, so biological evolution really just requires um, a couple of ingredients. So you need uh, inheritance of something, some trait, and we have genetics for that. Um, you need um, variation, um, and then you need differences in survival. And that's it. Um, and but any, any system that has those properties will evolve. So, and the differences of survival will... So let's say there's variation and um, someone with beautiful brown skin survives longer than someone with pale... As a rule, that's generally the case, skin. yes. skin. <laughs> and <laughs> that is then favoured and embedded as a trait... Yeah. I mean, embedded, there's, I mean, I, it, it, becomes, it becomes the most common yeah. trait, yeah. I mean, embedded, there's always variation, there's always opportunities to evolve new traits as well. But, yeah. but so, biologi so biological evolution, of course, has been going on life on the planet for four billion years or whatever. Um, but modern human behaviour, humanity as we see it here, has been around for a short period of time? Right, so what we would generally describe as modern human behaviour, so uh, features like um, uh, symbolic behaviour, ornamentation, art, um, more sophisticated tools, has really only been knocking around for around 100,000 years. I mean, the fuse was presumably lit and earlier, but, um, but yeah, only in the last 100,000 years. And there seems to be a very big ramping up of that, that kind of technology over the last 100,000 years. But tools, we've been using tools of some sort or the other, even crude tools, for much longer, for millions for, of years. For, for over three million years, yeah. So it's, it's, a, strain, it's a strange one. Um, I mean, when we first start using stone tools, our brains are, you know, no bigger in relation to our body size, at least, than a chimpanzee's. Um, and it, it, our brains only start getting bigger after we start using stone tools. So it seems like, you know, we didn't get clever and then use stone tools. We started using stone tools, and then afterwards we got smart. But those stone tools aren't particularly impressive. Um, Do you want to show us that we've got some pictures? I, can, I, I, think. I, I, I guess I can, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Slides. If they go forward. I think we're just going to switch present. Oh, there we are. There we go. Well, this is, this is a standard biological evolution, which we're all familiar with. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll, get to, I'll get to the um, other ones in a minute. But um, <laughs> nobody wants to see that. <laughs> I'll come back to that in a bit. But um, um, it's a bit slow. The tools, yeah. are they further back or forward? Yeah, they're forward. Um, I mean, I think, I think the point is that... Um, oh, it's just a bit slow when it changes, but... Um, um, uh, there we are. Yeah, yeah so the, these kind of tools that we first started using around 3.2 3 million years ago, 3.3 million years ago, they're really very crude. And even the ones that came in around 2.5 two million years ago, they're still pretty basic. 
And we don't start seeing stuff that you could identify as kind of impressive, that you would have a hard time, that people in this audience would have a hard time um, knocking up themselves, um, until about 1.6 1.7 million years with these kind of hand axes. Um, and even then, that sticks around for about another 1.3 to 1.5 million years. Not much change, you know. Really not, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, progress was not particularly impressive over that um, period of time. It was a slightly embarrassing. But over that period of time, our brain was getting, you know, our brain tripled in size. And so clearly there's a decoupling of brain size from the kind of stuff that, at least in the archaeological record, we can think is cool and clever. So um, brain size large for some million years, tools present for a period of time, and then in the last 100,000 years, sophistication of tools, art, uh, etc. Uh, yeah, it's, it's um, I mean, we call it the origins of modern human behaviour or the upper Paleolithic transition, whatever, whichever, whichever lecture you decide to attend. Um, um, but, you know, we see, you know, things, well, I mean, one of the most obvious things we see is bling. I mean, that's probably the most clear-cut first thing that appears on the horizon <laughs> is, um, uh, you know, so our good old vanities kicking in. Um, we see uh, things like musical instruments. We see, um, well, porn, I suppose. And we see, uh, but we see most, most dramatically, of course, we see the art. And, I mean, this is the first lion man. It's the first um, uh, anthropomorphic figurine. Uh, these are from um, uh, caves in, um, well, various caves in France and Spain. But, you know, you look at this stuff. I mean, there's no way that you can't look at that and say, well, whoever drew that thinks ostensibly in the same way as I do. You know, they have the same you know, human qualities, you know, yeah. that, that, that we all do today. I mean, that's not a monkey throwing paint on a wall, right? Yeah. I mean, it's... Uh, well, technically it is. Technically we are still <laughs> monkeys, but... But the argument then that, that's lifted from this is that in order for that, to, if, we, if we take those, um, if we take that reality, that data as given, that there was a long, long period of large brains and then something in the last 100,000 years which is different, you're proposing, you and others, that actually this can't just be about biology. It, it, it just can't. I mean, we, we look here, we've got, this is kind of, uh, you know, a first rule of thumb, um, estimate of how complex the technology is. And then this is the brain sizes of various fossils. And if over this period where we get this rapid escalation of technology, if anything, our brains have actually got a little bit smaller. So, which is also sort of slightly weird. So as technology ramps up, our brain, now, our brain size gets slightly smaller, if anything. Now, I mean, clearly, obviously, and obviously, size isn't everything, but it must be something, right? I mean, you don't, uh, you don't evolve a big brain for no reason, because it's a, it fundamentally a really stupid thing to do. I mean, for many good reasons. So, firstly, you know, um, there's any obstetrician in the audience or any woman who's ever given birth will know. I mean, we, we try to kill our mothers when we're born. Um, it's uh, it's um, massively energetic, en energy Glucose greedy, yeah. especially greedy. I mean, it uses yeah. it's two and a half percent of our body weight, about twenty five percent of our energy budget, about sixty up to sixty percent of our blue glucose blood glucose budget. It's very greedy. So I might Bad come idea. back to why we've evolved those brains, but what? See, what, if we're talking about something that's more than biology, mm. that's giving rise to this shift, this recent mm. shift, what is that thing? 
Well, I think, I think nowadays most anthropologists would agree, uh, those that study human evolution, that it's, it, it involves culture in some culture. way. Culture. But a very special type of culture. But well. what, when you say culture, what do you mean by culture? Another, another inheritance system. Another system that follows all those rules whereby it can evolve. So you have, um, you have characteristics, traits, that are transmitted generation to generation, because we learn, um, that have variation and have different differential survival because we choose some ideas more than others. I mean, you know, we've already heard, certainly Shakespeare, is, we know more about Shakespeare than we do about but, but other Marlowe, for example. what do you mean Marlo, by culture example. itself rather than what, what gives rise to it? What do, we, what do we mean when we're talking about what it is? Is it, is it how just we communicate, the matrix? It's just learned information. Learned information. Yeah. And is, is that particular to humanity or do other species no, have others, culture? Just other culture? species have culture. So... Um, uh, cetaceans, things like dolphins, whales, they have, for example, calls and behaviours that they learn from each other. Um, uh, uh, crows, I mean, corvids in general, the, you know, the crow family, they are an incredibly sophisticated culture, and, and, and other primates as well. So social organisation, they learn from one another. Yeah. So, if other, so many species have culture, we have culture. Yeah. What's particular about human culture that Cum separates it? It's cumulative. It's what? Cumulative. Meaning? So it means that we, we accumulate more and more over the generations. So we know more than could be built up. We have more information in our heads that could be built up by a lifetime of both learning ourselves from our interaction with our environment and learning from others, learning socially. So and we, we build it up over time. So we use concepts, we discuss ideas, um, we know things that weren't worked out in the last, in our generation or the last hundred years, but in the last thousand, the last 10,000, even in some cases the last hundred thousand years. Um, you know, things like making fire and so on. That's, we get those skills from a long, long time ago. You know, the concept of zero, I mean, that's some clever Indian guy, you know, that came up with that. I mean, we use it all the time. This is, we accumulate culture. And you've suggested that that's the defining, not only is that the defining characteristic of our species, mm but they were completely non-viable without it. Uh, totally. I think it's, I mean, we're, we're um, I suppose you could call us obligate culturevores. I mean, we, yeah, we're totally, uh, it's our life support system. Um, there are, I mean, there, aren't, there are no Tarzans, um, <laughs> and despite the fact they make good, um, good stories in Natural Geographic, uh, there are no wolf children. There are nobody, there are nobody that can survive. Um, I mean, we're, we're physically both far too weak, but also just unprepared. <laughs> For a, you know, for a for a non-culture-based interaction with our environment, and in fact, our ecology is primarily cultural and social cultural. And that culture, that uh, cumulative culture, then, does it evolve in time? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I mean, in the same way that other, it's select, it's adaptive and it's selected for. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not necessarily. It can be, but it's not always adaptive in the way we think. For example the survival of the individual. So you can think of, for example, ideas. They may survive even though they're non-adaptive because people just like them, you know, and so they want to learn those ideas. They're attractive ideas. Okay. So, yeah, so we don't... We, they can also cause us to survive and therefore they hitchhike on the back of our survival, but they don't have to be. And the difference then, of course, between the, so cultural um, evolution is it's not working in the same way as proteins or biological traits on the individual, but working on groups? Well, there are, there are so many parallels 
Um, there's, you know, you only need to tweak the formulas a little bit, and you get, and it, and it, and it works really well for culture. But they are, there are some key differences, of course. But there's so many parallels that really, it's, you know, the most useful theory in understanding culture evolution is evolutionary biology. You've done some quite interesting. Your group have done some quite interesting modelling on what the determinants of um, better um, cultural evolution, or, or, mm. or what informs cultural evolution. Adaptive culture, yeah, yeah. cumulative culture. What, what, what does, what shapes it, what gives it um, speed? And, well, um, I mean, of course, uh, I could go into details of things like learning mechanisms, like, you know, better learning, uh, better learning longer juvenile period um, would mean that we learn more, because we, we don't learn much when we're adults, really. So. Um, but it turns out that two of the really critical determinants, um, and this has been shown both theoretically and also in it by experiment, are um, population size, or at least the size of the population of individuals that you're interacting with, and the degree of migration between groups. And you've got some, have you got, have you got a graph yeah, I just wonder if you could explain a bit about the migration. Sorry, oh, that's my eldest daughter learning piano to illustrate learning. Um, but, um, anyway, yeah. So yeah, we. I mean, I, I can just illustrate um, some. Um, can we advance the slide to the graphs with the? Um, ah, I think. There yeah, we go. There we go. So this is um, this is an illustration where this is just a model, but um, it's modelling individuals learning from their parent generations, learning from each other, um, and learning in a way that replicates how we typically learn. So we try to learn a skill. We don't necessarily do as well as the person we were learning from, but occasionally, like that smart student, um, we actually do a better job than the person we're learning from, and so on. But these are you know, fairly well-tested mechanisms. And individuals are migrating between groups, so each green blob represents a population group. And so what we, what we show here is that the surface, the color, represents the degree of complexity, cultural complexity, um, that accumulates. And we can easily show that um, in more population-dense areas, you expect to see more complex culture and sophisticated culture evolving. But also, and um, if any Daily Mail editors are in the room, I'm really sorry for having to tell you this, but, um, oops. but also, uh, if we split a world, so it's the same population density on both sides, but on this side, they don't migrate as much as they do on this side. Again, migration is a clear driver of cultural sophistication. And we know that historically, anyway. I mean, you know, to, you know, there are many great periods of, um, uh, of, of cultural um, revolu you know, um, revolution in terms of cultural sophistication. I mean, ones that come to mind include the, you know, the spread of Islam and the, um, and the very large amounts of movement within the Islamic world, also the Greek world and Roman world and so on, and, and also in, in, in certain phases in, in, in Chinese history, where there was a lot of movement within a large region, and suddenly you see this big advances, technological advances, yeah. <clears throat> so, the, so the historic real-world data supports the modelling. Yeah, but also, um, so we can, we can use genetics to estimate what population densities were um, at different points in the past. I mean, it's a crude tool, but we can make estimates of it. And, and we can look at when these kind of things like art and all this sophisticated behavior first appear, because it appears at different places in the world at different times. And sometimes it appears and then disappears and then comes back. And it appears earliest in Africa, obviously. But, um, 
Uh, and when we estimate the population density, it turns out that the population density is the same in different parts of the world at the time. Right. When we see these revolutions happening. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like that a catalyzes it. Yeah, that's right. Can you just say a bit there? I mean, it's almost as if you're saying that the connectivity incites or contributes, accelerates cultural sophistication mm. and evolution. Mm. And does it, so what does that bring, what does it evolve culture towards? I'm always surprised when I hear you say to me um, that actually as a species, we're actually very altruistic towards one another. I see. Compared yeah. to, and of course you're comparing us to lions, aren't you? Or, well, to anything, really. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, we're, um, we're unusually uh, cooperative. Yeah. Um, I, altruism is a funny term. I mean, you can, you can observe apparently altruistic acts in many animals, but often it's because they're, they're, they're acting to ensure that their genes in mm. related individuals um, do well. And the classic example of that is eusocial insects like ants and, and, and bees and so on. But, and I know, this, I know that you hate this metaphor, but that's Dawkins... Selfish gene, yes. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, ultimately, that has to explain a lot of behaviour yeah. anyway. But yeah. um, so it turns out that it's almost impossible to get this kind of cooperative, altruistic behaviour by biological evolution without that massive degree of relatedness that you see in, you know, in, for example, a termite termites or something like that. And when they're effectively a superorganism, you know, because they're, they're almost genetically identical. And that, it just doesn't work um, with species like us, the, the outbreed, you know. Um, and, it's, and it's a very, very difficult problem um, what, to, to explain. To, to account for Yeah, to account for our cooperativeness. I mean, I know we can easily cite examples where we're actually ghastly creatures, but believe me, we are not that ghastly. You know, you, if this room was, if, this, if, if the audience was made up of chimpanzees, I mean, they, virtually every one of them would be dead by now. You know, you'd have ripped each other apart, you know. And, um, it's a, you know, so it's very difficult to explain. But also, one of the problems with evolution, particularly human evolution, is it goes back to that, that lovely Irish saying, which is, if you want to get there, I wouldn't start from here, you know, because we, we think, you know, we, we're, we're at the end, right? I mean, that's, that's not the way to understand the beginning at all. It's, mu it's much more difficult to understand. So, so it is very hard to explain that hyper-cooperation. And manifestations like, for example, cooperative breeding, um, which humans do superbly. What does that mean? Where, where um, with, with a big-brained animal like us, um, a uh, female having an infant is an incredible drain on her resources, an extremely risky thing to do. And so by females staggering reproduction and sharing the efforts of breeding, which is a highly cooperative process, they kind of they, they build in insurance policies against the death of their children and themselves. Okay, so this is, that's cooperative breeding. And male and cooperative fighting as well. Um, I mean, that's... I know it seems strange, but it's, um, I mean, it's, it's actually a very self-sacrificing act to go to war, in a sense, you know, it's, and, and yet human groups do it all around the world. These are extremely, you know, I don't want to get shot, I don't want to get killed in a war over some symbolic <coughs> nonsense, you know, but, but people do it. So, very difficult to explain how it, how it evolves, and I, but I think that the going down the cultural evolution route really helps. 
And I think the reason it helps is biological traits are only ever um, expressed at the level of the individual. Okay. Cultural traits can be realized or expressed at the level of the group. So, for example, cultural institutions um, are meaningless for an individual, but they have meaning for a group. What that means is any trait in any evolving system is selected, um, so made beneficial or, or selected against, at the level at which it's expressed. So if there's a cultural trait that's expressed at the level of the group, it can be selected at the level of the group. Okay. Now, you have a situation where traits, where you can have traits of, for example, cooperation that don't necessarily benefit it's single individuals, but benefit the whole group. And that gives us an opportunity. It's generally called dual inheritance theory. This gives us an opportunity for traits of niceness to evolve. But just to be clear, I mean, under this scenario, this is niceness evolving in terms of our culture. We're still thoroughly horrible um, as individuals. But now, we have an ecology that punishes potentially, like for example, a, a, an institution could be a punishment institution for bad behavior, for behavior against the group. Um, now we have an ecology, because primarily our ecology is our culture, that rewards <coughs> niceness. Now, biologically programmed niceness can evolve. As, a, as, as, a, as an individual's selectable trait. Precisely, yeah. <clears throat> so the, so the evolution is producing a social giving rise to a social environment that will favour that kind of trait. Correct, yes. And, and it, and, but that's, that's, you know, that's the first time that's happened, I would argue, you know, um, for an outbreeding species to have an, you know, evolve in an environment that's favouring that, that much niceness. I mean, okay, naked mole rats, you could argue that to some extent they do that, but not... And, love, <laughs> and so the possibility of love, as we understand it now... Right. As we understand it now, I mean, still, you know... Um, Not that we all understand what, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think most people have, are both perfectly aware that love as a concept is a cultural cons construct, but that it's referring to something that is, you know, programmed in us, that is biologically within us. Um, the, the problem is, where would it have come from? So evolution tends to rework and reuse old traits and rework them into new things, or expand them into new things. So I, I think we, un we generally understand that, um, you know, that the most clear-cut form of love that we feel is, is not, not unfortunately for our partners, but for our children, you know, I mean, because it's, it's, it's just un un unambiguous, okay. Um, so I would suggest that in, under, the, under this ecology where some kind of, you know, ingrained niceness can evolve, it's going to have to be borrowed from somewhere else um, and then spread borrowed more as widely. Co-opted. Co yeah, co-opted and then generalised to a, to a larger social domain than just our children or and our And the unconditionality, um, although you know, others might argue you know, it's ambivalent, but nonetheless, the unconditionality of that love then becomes a model almost. I, that's, that's a better way of putting it than I could think of, yeah. <laughs> just tell me then what... I mean. You've said some really interesting things um, about <coughs> social 
intelligence, therefore, in this world we're mm. describing, being almost of more value than cognitive intelligence? Well, I... Um, uh, sort of, yeah, let's, let's, put, let's put the cart before the horse, right? So, so let's go back to this basic problem. We've got this... Huge brain. Huge brain. Right? I, and you really shouldn't have evolved that at all. Um, because it's just, it's such a risky thing to have. Yeah. Such a drain on your resources. So easily smashed in as well. With just a hammer and that's it. Um, <laughs> do a similarly sized animal like a pig, it's not going to like it, but it ain't going to die. That's it, off, yeah. Right? Uh, so it's just a stupid, stupid thing to do. So what, but, and, uh, now, and then we, we see this expression of the use of these big brains, at least in the archaeological record, much, much later. Right? Now, evolution has no foresight at all. There's just no way that evolution... Yeah, I think I'll evolve a brain because I reckon in about two and a half to three million times it's going to be useful. And just not the way it works at all. So it must have been useful in some way. But we don't see any kind of obvious expression... Of its use. Yeah, of its use. I mean, you know, the stone tools, they didn't change very much. And, you know, you can see from the graph, it's just getting bigger and bigger. So, so why is it? What, what was it doing? Well, there's, there's a body of theory, mostly developed by a chap in uh, Oxford called Robin Dunbar. And what he was interested in was the relationship between um, brain size and group size. And so when he looked at other primates, he found a very, very good fit line. So, there was a very, so the group size of the primates very well predicted the brain size of the primates. So if you then follow that line up, and you look at our brain size, and you ask, well, what, does, what group size does that predict? It predicts about 150, which happens to be the average size of a hunter-gatherer group, the average size of a Neolithic village, you know, Roman, <laughs> Roman army units, the um, um, average size of um, social networks. I mean, so if you even meet somebody and they say, oh, I've got 800 friends on Facebook, you just say, no, no you haven't. <laughs> you, you cannot maintain that number of social <laughs> relationships, because maintaining social relationships is complex, right? I mean, you don't have just have to think, I don't know, I just have to think, what do you think, or even what do you think I think? I have to think, what do you think I think you think? Not just that, <laughs> but in a group, I have to think, what do you think she thinks I think you think he thinks, right? <laughs> and every other permutation. Now, you th think about the maths of that. Think about the complexity, the computational complexity of that problem, right? It's, um, it's harder than any kind of mathematics you can ever imagine Daring to touch, even the cleverest of nuclear physicists don't go, come anywhere near it. And yet people do this every day on the Jeremy Carl show. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Doesn't that suggest that maybe that's what it's wired for? It's just for that social intelligence? So I would suggest that, because there's benefits to large groups like predator avoidance and various other things, insurance policies for safety. So, um, uh, so I'd suggest that as these groups got larger, we got bigger brains, partly because we can afford them because our diet changed, in such a way that we could get all the energy in. Um, and that happened at least twice. Um, and partly just because we need it in large groups. You need a big brain to work in a large group, track the social relationships. And the place then in um, cumulative culture, the place of constructs like art? Right, well, I mean, art is... You know, the more. <laughs> I mean, I don't have an arts background at all, so it's... Um, uh, and I've never, I've never really... I've never really understood art, I suppose, being a sort of you know, standard nerdy scientist. Um, but I think looking at it from this perspective, it becomes so important because it's, 
If art's job is to tell us how the world is, I think it's a massive failure and should be ashamed of itself. (laughs) But if art's job is to tell us how to see the world, how to experience the world, how to, how to you know, change the senses of you know, this monkey hanging around in trees to, to, to construct complex knowledge, well, then I think it's doing a fabulous job. I mean, I think, and it's continued to do a fabulous job. And I think this is generally what art does today. It doesn't tell us how the world is. It tells us how to experience the world, how to see the world. And I mean, in the broadest sense, I include things like marketing, everything from marketing to, you know, to music to poetry. This, it learns, you know, poetry learn, teaches us how to hear things, you know. Music, how to hear, how to hear things as well. So. But within that view, then, the connectivity you're describing gives rise to the cultural, accumulative culture and mm. cultural evolution, which in a sense insists then on connectivity. Yeah, yeah, so you're, absolutely, you've got this feedback um, which maybe explains this rapid escalation in the last 100,000 years of human culture and sophistication. But yeah, absolutely. So I think we might end on Only Connect, uh, a head <laughs> of coffee, and with thanks to Mark Thomas. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.